for joining us today. Um, my name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm Managing Director of IIM, and we have Lee Harris with us as well, who's our managing member. Um, our podcast topics go through different venture capital and early stage investing topics. Um, and today we're going to talk about how we think through building our own portfolio. A little bit of background on IIM. Um, we are not a fund at this point. Um, we are essentially structured as an angel investment group. So we've got about 35 investors um, who make their own individual investment decisions, but IIM facilitates those investments. Um, so we create a special purpose vehicle um, to collect everyone's capital and we're one line item on, um, on a company's capitalization table. So that's just at a high level. We focus on animal health, human health, and agriculture companies only. So that already narrows down our investment thesis um, and, and our thought process for developing a portfolio. But I mention our structure because even though we are structured as an angel group, we really treat our investments like a fund would. We're trying to build a portfolio. Right now we've got 16 companies in the portfolio and we've made 24 investments in those 16 portfolio companies. Um, and we've got more in due diligence, more that we anticipate um, moving forward with over the next couple of months. Um, so we're going to talk today more about how we think through building this portfolio and what our investors are looking for as well as they build their own personal portfolio. So Lee, I mentioned our, our verticals. Maybe you can mention the stage of companies um, and the range that we look for and how we think about balancing our portfolio in that way. Sure. Well, we start looking at uh, the verticals on a third, a third, a third basis, if possible. We like to, to have our investments diversified rather than being really, really heavy in one of those verticals. Uh, and again, that's for risk management purposes and, and not just risk management, but also to take advantage of some of the really uh, interesting create, creative ideas that uh, have emerged in all three of those spaces. So uh, we're, we're at the point now where when we have an investor meeting uh, and three companies presenting, we hope that we're able to bring in one company from each of those verticals. Uh, and, uh, that is, uh, part of the structuring objective here, uh, beyond that, uh, we look at some very early stage companies where there's no revenue, it's pre-revenue. And it's also, uh, we, we probably won't look at a company if it doesn't have a, a prototype, uh, that's already, uh, if you come in with just an idea, you probably need to work on that idea a little bit more and get to the point where you have a minimally viable product, an MVP, uh, that we can look at and, and potentially test in some way, shape, or form. But uh, we look at companies that are like that. Uh, we look at companies at the other end of the spectrum that have revenue that may have actually had a Series A uh, round of investment, <clears throat> but because it fits so nicely in our, uh, in our verticals, uh, and it's such an innovative uh, product that's being produced that uh, we, we, we're interested in making that kind of an investment as well. Even though it's not priced as favorably, uh, it still offers that level of diversification. For the most part, we're kind of right down the middle, though. Uh, uh, we're not on either end of the extreme, but uh, maybe a company has a little bit of revenue or it's going to have 
a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue in the upcoming year. And the founder can show us how that's going to happen. Maybe there are three primary customers that they already have conversations with. Uh, and so we, we kind of like that, uh, uh, that space where there's a little bit of revenue or a little bit of revenue on the horizon. Uh, and uh, again, we also like to see companies where there's been some level of investment by the, f- the founder, the founder, family and friends, kind of the FFF approach. Uh, if there's been some non-dilutive funding through grants, uh, that's really attractive too. Uh, we've seen several companies that come in that don't, don't have a, a product in, in revenue yet, but they've received two or $3 million of non-dilutive funding through, through various grants. And uh, that's very attractive. And if there's a path to more of that kind of funding, uh, that's also attractive to us because uh, if we make our investment and then there's no need for any further uh, rounds of funding, uh, that's rare. But when that happens, that's a big win. I think we have a company that maybe had two rounds of funding and then there was an exit, uh, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Um, and we were fortunate enough to, to participate in both those rounds. So uh, that's kind of a, a, at a high level how we look at this. That's right. And you mentioned, Lee, about a third, a third, a third in the three industries that we focus on. I pulled up our portfolio information just even with our most recent investments that we made in the last in the last 30 days or so. Um, and with that, our full portfolio is really pretty close now to that third, a third, a third. We're 21% in animal health, 37% in ag, and 43% in human health. So that, that's really pretty close. Um, and we have been on the lookout for more animal health and ag companies to, to create even more balance. Um, but that'll be important to us as we continue to grow as well, to have a nice balance of the different industries that we focus on. Um, and I think you're, you're totally right about the different stages and what we look for, maybe generating revenue or not. Um, and that also depends on the type of company, I would say as well. Like some of these really heavy scientific-based um, R&D companies, maybe those are the ones you know who receive a lot of that grant funding that you mentioned as well. Some of them, even more than two or $3 million um, that they've received to, to do that R&D work. Um, we know that those still might be a little bit longer timeline to exit. Right. Oftentimes, some of those more science-based companies could get acquired once they reach certain valuation inflection points. It might not take a pathway to commercialization to realize an exit. So we, we do look for those opportunities, but we also know, you know, we have to plan for a longer term hold, if you will, on those really early, earlier stage companies. And some of our companies in the portfolio that are software companies already generating revenue, we certainly expect an exit more quickly for a software company because they can ramp up more quickly, boost up their revenue, boost up their cover, boost up their customers um, in, a, in a relatively short timeline, especially compared to some of these other science companies. And we like to have a mix of those companies as well. Yeah, some, something else that's unique uh, that, that I think uh, uh, our audience might be interested in is we have a relationship with a, a venture capital firm, a company called Fulcrum Global Capital. They're, they're based here in the Kansas City area as well. And they invest in two of the three verticals, ag and, and animal health. Uh, their managing uh, director sits on 
in, in our meetings. And uh, we work really hard to collaborate with them. And there's a good reason for that because they're interested in seeing early stage companies uh, in the domain uh, that, that I mentioned, uh, but it's too early for them to fund. But if we do the funding, uh, then it may be a natural for them to pick up the next round. Uh, and, and that's a nice pathway. It's, a, it's, it's, I think, something that a lot of angel groups don't do is figure out, okay, where is the next round of funding going to happen? Uh, they just throw the, throw the money in and hope that the company stays alive uh, and that somebody comes along for funding. And we really are much more uh, intentional about making those investments to build our portfolio uh, toward an exit someday. Who's going to come in with the next round of funding? I mean, that we may want to do a, a, a subsequent funding round as well, but it may be led by Fulcrum or another one of the, the venture capital uh, partners that we have out there across the landscape. And on the other end of the spectrum, Lee, if a company is too early for us, maybe they don't have that prototype yet, or they don't have the data that we're looking for. Um, we have relationships with earlier stage funders as well that we try to refer them to, to get connected with and get involved with. There's grant programs locally, there's accelerator programs, um, there's earlier stage, maybe individual investors who sometimes have a different um, risk profile for the companies that they invest in. Um, but really, there are there are tons of programs and resources for founders to try to generate more traction and create that prototype um, and even iterations of that prototype so that they are ready for real professional investors um, who are going to look for that level of detail in their product um, in, in order to see if it's really a viable company. Um, another diversification tool we use is that we invest throughout the United States. Um, so geography um, is important to us. We, we look at companies from West Coast to East Coast. I mean, most of our portfolio companies are here closer, I would say like Middle America, Midwest, um, because our, our verticals like animal health and agriculture, so many of those companies are based a little bit closer. Um, we've got even a human health company in Champaign, Illinois, though, another one in uh, California, uh, but we have a company based in North Carolina as well in the animal health space um, and really everywhere in between and one in Canada as well. Um, so we see that as a good diversification tool for our investors that we're not too focused just on local companies because at that point we just we feel like there's not quite enough deal flow for the, the verticals that we focus on to build a robust portfolio. Yeah and so shift gears for a minute and again this is part of the portfolio construct but talk a little bit about what we're looking for return-wise and why some companies that might offer uh, some, some nice return uh, possibilities wouldn't make the cut for us because they're maybe too small of a, a total addressable market. But we're looking for some uh, IRR metrics and some uh, multiple on capital. You might talk a little bit about those requirements. Sure. So as we're building our portfolio, we think of this, we think of this as a fund, as I mentioned before, and the, the top tier funds can deliver a 27% and above IRR to their investors. That's, that's what the research shows. Um, but in order to get that, knowing that we will have failures along the way, anytime we make an investment, we want to see that there's a 10x to 20x opportunity um, in terms of a multiple 
on our capital that we invest. Um, and the reason for that is because like we have to be able to, to deliver those sort of high level returns. We have to have the outsized returns to make up for some of the zeros that will, will likely happen. We haven't had any failures to date, um, but that's you know not, not very typical. Um, and we do anticipate that at some point that there's going to be some that we don't make much money off of. Of course, we'll take, you know, the singles and doubles and triples um, when it comes to an exit. Um, but at the beginning, when we make an investment, we really have to see the opportunity like that upside opportunity can outweigh those smaller returns that'll happen as well. Anything you wanted to add, Lee? No, that's, that's what I was hoping that you would, yeah. you would share. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there could be great companies out there that just don't have the total addressable market or the potential upside that we're looking for. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them, but it just really doesn't fit our metrics that we're looking for um, and what our investors are looking for in this space. So what what would you say the smallest total addressable market, realistic total addressable market would need to be for us to consider a company? I mean, I always like to see total addressable market in the billions, really. I mean, that's really the space that these companies are entering. Um, It could be smaller, like in the $500 million plus size, if there's not very many players in that space, Um, because then who's going to acquire a company for $100 million if the space is only $500 million total? Um, So that, that comes into play as well. It's a little bit of both that we look at what's the competitive landscape um, and also what's, what's the total addressable market. But often, I mean, you see this all the time, Lee, when, when founders pitch, they'll, they'll say that their total addressable market is $3 billion. But is it really? It's oftentimes not because they're, they're taking like a much broader look. Like that's not really the market that they can capture. So we ask, we ask founders all the time. Now, can you narrow that down some? What, what's really like your customer base? What sort of revenue can you generate? What is your space within that big market um, that you're really entering? And that most of the time brings down that total. It's not, not a bad thing to lower it. um, But I think, I think a lot of work um, can often be done when assessing the total addressable market. Sure. Sure. So switch gears again. And Talk a little bit about uh, convertible notes versus priced rounds, because we have uh, invested in both. And again, there's some risk management elements there. But as we construct the portfolio, what is it that we really are, are wanting to see here? Our preference is to invest in preferred shares. There's a valuation on the company there. We know what we're buying Um, and we have ownership in the company as well. We do have quite a few convertible notes and we've done those um, if the situation is right. So if this really is more of a bridge financing round and there's an end in sight, it's not a bridge to nowhere, it's a bridge to somewhere. We know maybe the company is going to raise their series A or series B in eight months or 12 months. then we, we would utilize a convertible note, but it would really have to be the right type of scenario timeline um, in order for us to do that. I, I know we hear a lot from companies that they, they'd they like to use a convertible note because then you kind of kick the can with setting a valuation and it's too early to come to an agreement between the investors and the founders what that valuation is. Um, but actually there is a valuation when you use a convertible note because 99% of the time there's a valuation cap 
And that cap has to be agreed upon and the interest rate has to be agreed upon and the conversion discount has to be agreed upon. So those are all, I mean, it turns out in my experience, Lee, a convertible note is just as complicated as a price round because there's all these different levers um, and different key terms in a convertible note that are really critical for both the company and for the investors. Um, so that's why we prefer a priced round. Um, sometimes companies shy away from that because maybe they believe investors don't really know how to value an early stage company. But I, I would argue against that. I think we can we can set a valuation for a company using different methodologies and different ways to look at things and, and come to an agreement with founders in most cases. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of uh, bizarre valuations uh, when we're talking to founders that that are looking at priced rounds. Uh, I mean, it used to be just a few years ago that a company with no revenue might be putting a $4 million value in place or a $5 million value in place. And now we're seeing crazy numbers up in the teens. And uh, you, you ask for methodology, how'd you get there? And I think that some of these uh, conferences that people attend or the books they read or the podcasts they listen to, whatever, are encouraging uh, these ultra high valuations that are just completely uh, not grounded in, in any sort of reality. Uh, but I would rather have that argument today and convince a founder today that it's better to set a realistic valuation in which we'll invest because if you set it too high, it's going to impact the ability for future fund, uh, funding rounds. Uh, and, and nobody wants a down round where uh, the, the next, if, if we value it today at $12 million and the next round of funding comes in and says, hey, we're not going to do this at anything more than $10 million, that's a down round. And that does not work for, for us. So again, as we construct a portfolio, we're looking for for companies that are fairly valued in the marketplace, not just based on what they're worth, but also on what their ability is going to be to get future funding routes. I was looking at our portfolio, Lee, and of the 24 investments that we've made in those 16 portfolio companies, um, we have four convertible notes right now, um, three we've made in the past that have converted to equity. So, I mean, most of our investments these days, um, the, the vast majority are into, into a preferred, shot, preferred stock yeah. investment. Um, and that's really been our preference. And, and that makes a lot of sense too for the type, like the level of companies, the type of money that they're looking for as well. Because most of the time we are a co-investor, if you will, like there's a, a lead investor who is setting the terms, usually they're a professional venture capital fund. And most of the time, those professional venture capital funds are setting a price round. Um, and so we've been able to align ourselves with some really smart funds and participate in those investment rounds in that way. But we do have convertible notes out there too. So yep. a little bit of both. As we wrap up, Lee, is there anything else we didn't touch on in terms of portfolio design and what we look for? So uh, again, uh, it's, it's not just writing a check to a company, uh, we, we are trying to move more and more into to providing some level of service to the company. One of the, the concepts we are working with right now is uh, as a program uh, that would be offered to founders uh, to help them develop their skills as CEOs, for example. Uh, and, and, and again, that's a de-risk uh, 
mechanism that we like to use. Um, we've pointed a number of our founders in different directions for that kind of help, but we're trying to become more intentional with it and working with uh, perhaps the Kauffman Foundation here in the Kansas City area that that does that kind of training. Um, and again, because we're geographically agnostic, uh, it needs to be a program that can be plugged into from anywhere in the country. Uh, but again, uh, our interest is not just in writing a check, but it's also in helping the company, helping the founder uh, in any way we can. We have some of our domain experts uh, are called upon with some regularity. Uh, even if they're not on a board, they may uh, be available to help a, a company that's uh, got a particular issue or uh, an idea that they need to flesh out with the help of the domain expert. And again, we, I know you, you have some board observer rights and uh, we have people that are sitting on boards that uh, provides yet another level of, of involvement with the company rather than just that check. Right. I think that's a great point to tie everything together, Lee. Um, and that's, that's our topic for today, constructing a portfolio. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you next time.